Welcome everyone to the fifth official Marcus Insights podcast this week. We're due to unforeseen circumstances. We're unable to do the performance analysis podcast, but we do have two of the members on who are due to be on that podcast, and I'll get to them in a second. My name, of course, is Andrew McGregor, aka El Pavotti, FTBL on Twitter. Uh, we have Chris Summerall, or Summerall, sorry, my apologise, and Luke Jago on. They are two new recruits to Market Insights. Uh, guys, trying to give an introduction to yourselves. Yeah, hi, I'm Chris Summersell. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Chris Summersell. Um, I yeah, just joined market. Um, predominantly come from a coaching background. Um, I've coached since 2012. Uh, got my UEFA B license and worked at clubs um, like Brighton Hove Albion. Um, and I've just recently moved to Scotland and I, I've begun coaching up here to try and uh, spread the word um, <laughs> and uh, in the, do my best to, to sort of bring through some Scottish players. Um, I also worked for the English FA um, before I moved up as a coach educator as well. And um, for those who do follow me on Twitter, I, I share a lot of my writing on uh, coaching, but also scouting and recruitment stuff as well. Hello, everyone. Luke Jago here. Um, playing football currently, play for Breen FK in Norway. Um, I've been overseas for five years now. Um, came over when I was 20 years old after playing a little bit in Australia. Um, was actually born in Austria as well, so a bit all over the place. Um, really interested, obviously, in football, um, analytics, scouting, coaching. I do coaching on the side as well. And obviously, I'm super excited to be to be working with Market. So, yeah. And um, we also have Tim Keith. Thank you, for, thank you, guys. We also have Tim Keith on as well. Hello, looking forward to the podcast and seeing what the new recruits have to say. Well, without further ado, so, yeah, without further ado, yeah, exactly. So, in, in t- we'll discuss quickly about you, you guys. Obviously, Chris, pre-call, pre pre-record in the podcast, I did ask you about your. You worked for Brighton, the Brighton Development Centre. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, they um, Brighton held a, a lot of development centres in London, sort of South London and Surrey borders. Um, so worked there for two years, um, sort of developing players to uh, to you know hopefully step up into the academy. I worked with the really young ones, um, so it's it's really interesting working like now working in, you know scouting and recruiting for adult football and uh, and stuff and trying to sort of join the dots between. Uh, you know, between the, the the fundamental early stages of you know what players uh, what players look like then and what they look like now, and uh, is that co- is that common that uh, like Premier League Championship teams have uh, like development centres in in, in London? Because obviously, such a large catchment area for players. They do, yeah. I mean, obviously, London is is such a vast city, so many so many people um, there. So every sort of club wants a chunk of the pie. Um, see, South London at the moment is just a, a massive, cause, uh, you know, sort of. You, there's so many players there. You know, obviously, Jaden Sancho was is from Camberwell, and you know he's just one of the the many players from from South London that that you know, is making sort of superstardom. And there's like quite a lot of reasons why I think you know that particular area is such a like such a fruitful place. But uh, yeah, there's there's you know every single club in London and sort of surrounds you know as well have. Um, uh, you know, have development centres there, to, you know, to try and sort of, yeah, you know, it does get a bit, a bit like a meat market at times where you you realise that you know that that there's like kids as young as seven that are being hunted by you know 
five or six clubs at the same time. But, um, you know, in, just in terms of the football side, there, there's so much talent in, in, in the city at the moment. It's massive projection, that isn't it, at seven years old, to try and project that someone who's obviously got an innate ability at a young age is going to make it, though, in nearly 10 years' time as a professional footballer. It's, do you think it's more to try and take away the chance that they could be a professional footballer and other teams can't sign them? Or do you think that's why they sign them so young now, rather than waiting to see if they develop? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a race to the bottom because if one club says we're not going to you know, start recruiting players until they're 14, they know that every other club will go, well, thanks, that's one less competitor. So uh, it, it's very difficult. You cannot say a, you know, a kid at seven, even 14, 15, is going to make it. You know, there's so many variables, but yeah, clubs, that they, they want to be, you know, there they you know, they want to be in that space and, and trying to develop as many players as possible and um uh but it's still a bit haphazard you know players get <clears throat> released and I, I really hate that word i hate the fact that you know a, a young a young footballer can be a young person can be released by an academy so told they're not good enough uh, so i think there's lots and lots of um uh you know it, it's really difficult you, you can't project it but no one's really come up with a better way um, of, of doing it at the moment, which is uh, which I'm sure is 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 what we maybe develop in the future. Yeah, that, that, that's so. So now for someone who's had a completely different experience in football, and Luke, Luke, you know, obviously we all know that you've got a great storyteller. In terms of you, you obviously, what was the reason you decided to obviously move from Australia? Obviously, you've been playing and living to come back to Europe. Yeah, so we've got quite a closed system in terms of professional players in Australia. We've only got one professional tier and then there's a massive gap to the second tier because teams are only training like two, three, four times a week kind of max. And I kind of looked at it and made the the decision that if I wanted to have a career in the game that it was just not going to be possible playing in the, in the second tier. So I worked in a call centre for like six months whilst training, trying to train full time. I ended up having to do futsal on a Wednesday because there was no one training. Like I said, the second tier wasn't training that much. And then I kind of just booked the one-way ticket to Europe, probably badgered every single agent that there was in Europe. And um, eventually after, I think it was for three or four months, I tried with different trials and eventually got the chance to go to Flora and just kind of had one of those why not moments when I got asked to go to a town of 10,000 people. And then I've been pretty much in Europe five years now. So it's been a heck of a journey across a few different countries. Yeah. So in terms of Luke, in terms of Norway, is that, do you think that's somewhere where they're quite open-minded about where players are from and they do take chances on projects more so than maybe, you know, English clubs looking for you, you, you probably maybe try to latch on with in terms of trying to get, a, you know, into England, any, any more open-minded? Would you yeah, say? yeah, definitely. I mean, I have, have an English passport, so I was considered English and, um, but but Norway, you know, in terms of just, just even getting trials and stuff like that, they're just so much more open-minded. I think there's really quite a fascination for the English game over here in Norway. Um, the amount of Leeds fans and stuff like that is is incredible. Um, and then even when I, when I was a free agent and I left Flora, I found a lot of the English clubs I went to, I went to a fair few clubs like League Two. And, um, I mean, they probably wouldn't say it, but the feeling I got from playing and from you know, the feedback was kind of that we think you're good enough to play here, but at the same time, you're kind of not used to the English game. And I think there's this kind of view in, in English football that there's some unique stuff that kind of goes on in the English game that isn't 
inherent in other games. And I think that's, you know, a reason why they tend to try and stick with English-based players. But I think it's it's really opening up now and clubs are starting to be a lot more open-minded when they've seen how much success you can have with, you know, foreign signings as long as you do your research and your, your analysis on them properly. Yeah, I agree with that. There is an element of risk aversion in the English game. I suppose, especially down the levels, managers obviously don't get long in football anymore. So I suppose they tend to go for players that they know or the team to know who will hit the ground running. So unfortunately for players like yourselves, it's you know sort of a barrier in place. You went from Florida to, to uh, Faroe Islands. Now I don't think many people know what the football's like in the Faroe Islands. It, it, what's what's the level like there, and what what are the standards? What are the you know the standards like in terms of the stadiums, the training pitches? Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I kind of did not. I I did a bit of research. Go, I did do a fair bit of research before, but you know, it's never. You, you can never really understand it until you're there. I was quite surprised the top teams in terms of the levels they had. Um, like Clarksvik was a team who won the league last year, and they went to Luzerne over two legs in the Europa League. And I think they only lost 1-0 over two legs. So there's definitely some quality in the league, but there's just a massive kind of dichotomy between the top and the bottoms. The bottom teams you're playing, some of the plays you're playing, you kind of can't quite believe you're playing against them. They've got a bit bit extra around the edges, you know, but then some of the top teams are, 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 could go over, I think, into Norway and in the Obos and, and, and do well. So, I mean, for a, for a country of 50,000 people, it's just amazing that they have a, it, you know, a semi-professional, if not professional for some of the teams kind of league. Um, the facilities, everyone, everyone's kind of got these little boutique stadiums, usually one stand, all artificial. I think there's two pitches in the whole country, which are grass. Um, uh, but, they're, but they're all football mad, mate. They train, I mean, my old team now, they're training twice a day. Um, six six days a week or five days a week plus a game um and a lot of the teams are training like that so it's just the culture over here in europe they're football mad it's the same same in norway i found i mean even in the third and fourth tiers here you've got pretty much full-time training with guys who are who are working so i think it's um I, i find it really impressive coming from australia kind of the work ethic for the guys to train and play and just the love of the game you know yeah, I've got that. That, that, that is interesting because it's a completely different perspective that most of us, obviously in England, do are very focused on the, you know, the AFL or the Premier League. Obviously, we don't really look into the, the, those more, more deemed smaller leagues, if, if you mm-hmm. if you will. I think my final question before if the guys want to any, ask any questions before we get into the question and answer session. In Norway, you used to have a quite a proud tradition. And obviously, you're playing in Norway. I know you're not Norwegian, but you, you obviously play with a lot of different players. You still have a proud tradition of sending players to the Premier League. And then the pipeline sort of dry, dry, dried up in the mid-2000s. In terms of what you've seen now, do you think Norway's going to have a resurgence? Is the level getting better? Are you obviously in the, the level you play at and the levels you have played at? Do you think it's, 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 on, it's going to get to a better level and the national team's going to rise up again? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think so. It's always kind of hard to judge. You try and not be, I guess, swayed. Obviously, they've had Holland, and he's been a massive success. I mean, mm. he's he's a big reason why we, we've been getting paid our wage at the moment, I think. So, shout out to him because <laughs> um, he's from our club. But, um, you know, I think I try not to get swayed. But in terms of the youth development, what I really like over here is They've quite flexible in the way they want to develop players. I've been doing my C license, and it's kind of a really holistic approach um, to kind of player development. And I think that the country in general is football mad, and it is kind of 
they had a dark period where they were playing quite kind of brutal football in one sense. And I think they've kind of moved out of that now and they're starting to implement more more of a modern tactical game and, and the tactical coaching at a lower level. Um, so, and, and even just like pitch access, like it's one thing I find amazing here. And, you know, for example, I, I think a big reason in Holland's development is we've got like, Within, I'm, you know, in, in Brina, within 10 minutes, I could walk to seven, eight, nine, 10 pitches. And, you know, from speaking to people, because I was really interested in coming to the club, like, you know, what is kind of the things that fostered Holland's development? And, 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 you know, there's a good coaching framework and stuff. But I think as much of it was just this kid had access to brilliant facilities. He could go into the hall and play for three hours a day. And I think that was something that he kind of did. So, it's been really interesting kind of having that inside look from from my perspective. No, that, that, that is interesting. From where I am in Liverpool, <clears throat> there's a, I think there's two pitches in, the, in, in a four-mile radius. So that is the difference. Access obviously does help mm. players develop. And unfortunately, England, that, that's not the case. Tim, obviously, we, we've obviously been working with the guys a while now, but have you got any questions for them about stuff they've done in the past? Or do you want to move on to the question and answer session? Yeah, I, I was going to... Um, agree there with Luke's point about the the change in Norwegian football. I remember kind of the the nineties Norway team was pretty much Wimbledon kind of crazy gang style football at the time, and they were kind of often compared to them with kind of play a six foot four wide attacker to attack the back post and kind of long balls. And then you look at the kind of players they're producing at the moment, um, lots of different kind of small technical players over the last few years, and it, it has been a massive shift. Um, yeah, let's go. Let's go on to the let's go on to the questions. I want to hear hear some answers. Make sure we haven't made a terrible mistake with these two new people we've appointed. Well, yeah, that's, so we're going to have some. We've got some question answers. I've added some questions in. We've had some off Twitter, obviously, but a lot of people back and working in Britain today, so we didn't get as many questions as we'd like. But that's no problem. We we, we soldier on. So uh, we had a, we had a question here uh, from someone called Brainy Brands, which obviously is a reference to Marcel Brands, the Everton director of football. And their question is. And we obviously all work now within football, so we can all answer this question. What can you do to give yourself the best chance to work in data analytics? Who wants to take that one? I'll I'll take that one. Um, because because we've just basically done a, a big recruitment project, and I think we had 140 applications in the end. And um, what really stood out is the fact that I've heard people like uh, Ted from Statsbomb have made this point lots of times. You've got to kind of publish your work for people to see. Um, it's all very well saying to someone, um, I think I've got a good eye for talent or something along those lines. But if you haven't got blogs, tweets, uh, what? yeah, blogs and tweets, they're fine. Anything like that over a period of six months to a year, then we can look at them. We can say, oh, that person sounds like they know what they're talking about. If you don't publish anything at all, um, you really don't have anything to show. And a lot of people had quite good CVs in terms of they had worked, done done a bit of part-time scouting, they'd done um, various things within the game already, but they didn't have anything written down that they could share or show. So, yeah, publish or perish is what I say. Guys, so I will use... Come in there, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with that because I sat on not writing for... For years, you know, and, and when I say years, that is years. You know, when I started coaching, I you know would consume loads of you know tactical analysis pieces, things like that. 
um, like the guys at Spiel Verlagerung. I hope I haven't murdered the pronunciation there. Um, I can't say it, so fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, I, I read it and I thought, oh, I could probably do that. But it was one of those things that just got, got you know, put, you know, pushed down the road. Oh, I might do that one day. And, you know, and I guess it was a, a combination of some frustration when, you know, I was, I was doing well with my coaching. Um, but, you know, all of a sudden when I started writing and putting stuff out there, you know, started getting more followers and more so you know, more it was more of a conversation happened online and and i started learning more and you know i started getting more contacts and um throughout the game and build, building confidence as well to to push stuff out there that was a bit more you know a bit more ambitious as well so i i think there's there's lots and lots of smart minds in football but you you just have to put something out there and it, it is tough when you when you press publish and you you think oh my word everyone's going to hate it you know someone's going to pick up a small point that i made in there and, and make a big deal of it and um it just it was as soon but as soon as i started you know sort of getting over that part was when uh, when i really started sort of developing um and and here i am now yeah i think just i mean the published stuff is is spot on i think that was a a big step for me to start doing my own analysis stuff. I think also looking specifically at kind of data analysis within football analytics is just looking at where kind of your strength strengths and weaknesses lie and then working on yourself to be the best kind of rounded individual that you can be. So for me, I think I have an okay football knowledge background. And so if I want to keep working in this space, I need to improve kind of my technical skills. And so I'm trying to learn a little bit of coding, a little bit of Python and stuff like that. And I think so, you know, if you've really got a heavy technical background, you're comfortable with, you know, coding and these type of things, then it's maybe kind of working on that football knowledge and having that specialist knowledge so you can translate whatever you're doing to a coach and kind of speak their language. And then obviously communication is a massive one across the board. Definitely. And uh, don't forget, we've actually... In order to work in football, we've had to start our own company. It's uh, if I if I'd gone to any club and said I want to work for you, first of all, they probably get four or five hundred applications per advertised job. They very very rarely actually advertise jobs because a lot of football is recommendations based. So, in order to actually work for a club based off speculative CV, you've got next to no chance. I don't think the odds are really low of getting one of those jobs. So kind of find a niche, find a, a writing style, and also, without giving too many secrets of, of what we've done away, you've got to think about who the audience for the piece you're writing is. It's very easy probably to get loads of hits writing transfer speculation mm. pieces. Indeed, any type of tweet about Arsenal to spend £50 million on this player, read about him, get so many more views than my analysis of the set pieces of Leicester City in 2012. <laughs> type articles but within football the, the latter is valued far more than the former so you've got to just think am I writing this for fun in which case just write anything if you're kind of tactically trying to build a career in football think about the kind of things that will appeal to people working in football rather than a mass audience you know if I go on my <clears throat> Twitter you know timeline it, it it's there still is a, a big difference between coaching Twitter um and sort of analytics twitter and there's and there's so much you know analytics stuff going on now and as luke's just said he's learning python i'm trying to learn r um at the moment but i really think there's a space for coaches to come into that world and say you know we've got a great deal of knowledge of how to coach how to put on sessions and how to improve and develop players um but i'd really like to see them sort of you know to almost like 
you know to, to critique sort of the, lots of the, uh, the, the the metrics we see now um, and why it might not work for them or why that makes sense for them and things like that because I think that's a real big area that needs to sort of be filled um, because you've got your analytics Twitter and then you've got your coaching Twitter and you know apart from a very few, you know few like notable examples that I don't think there's a great deal of sort of communication between the two. Uh, or certainly not collaboration between the two, and I think that's a real big place where where I think people can sort of develop and, and find the niche at the moment. I think that that's a great point, really, because I think you know what I'm not going to go. I think you're going to cover a lot of that on the performance analysis podcast. But I think that's a great point. I think for for analytics to be better, they need to understand what the coaches want, and for coaches to be understand analytics more, they need to sort of come together and work together to make it a better understanding so it fits better. So I think that's a great point, and I think these have all raised good points. I always say the three keys to it are hard work, learn. And practice. So the practice thing, obviously, like Tim said, is putting putting stuff out there. Obviously, you guys are learning how to do R and Python. That is obviously that's obviously learning and hard work. You have to put you have to put the hours. And I, I didn't start working in football until I was th- until I was thirty three. So it is about getting yourself out there and having an evidence. Obviously, I'm someone who's known for putting players out there. And I, and I think that, you know the people have obviously got their own comfort zones and their own what they like to do. But I just think that sometimes, you know, maybe push yourself outside the comfort zone, maybe watch those games in Tunisia, Morocco. You know, some, I think a lot of people focus on those top five leagues and I think you need to separate yourself. And I think a lot of people do do that well. I think more people should have a little look outside the, 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 the norms in Europe and try and find those players or even to, you know, run the data on them, for, for example, whatever data set you've got available is. Um, but also, you know, if you're young, I think there's, you know, when I was, you know, I was 18 looking to go to university, there wasn't really any great courses to do. And I think there's now there's a lot of football related courses that you can do. So this so that is an option. But as I said, I'm 30, I was 33 when I got working in football. So the dream's never over, as they say. So, you know, you know, keep an open mind to it, really. I'll move on to, I'll move on to the next question. This one was for, from my friend, you know, Everton fan friend, Owen Parks. He said, what player springs to mind that you've got badly wrong? Either way, so whether it was you thought they'd be great when they signed for a certain club or when they came through the academy, or alternatively they disappointed you and you were wrong that they would be, be a success in England or wherever they signed for. Who wants to take that one first? Yes, I can jump in unless Tim is. Um, I mean, I have a few players, few players that spring to mind. I wouldn't say that I've had a anywhere near a 100% hit rate. Um, no, I remember no. watching Anderson before he came to United and I was kind of certain that he was going to be perfect for the English game. He was really dynamic in Porto and and a goal scorer and kind of fitted the way that United wanted to play in terms of like fast attacking football. And that, you know, uh, now if you look at where he is, I, I mean, he still won something under United, but I don't think it kind of panned out exactly how, how I envisioned it. Um, Giovanni Dos Santos as well at Barcelona. I was convinced he was the new Ronaldinho. I was in love with him. Um, Ronaldinho just had a left foot, didn't quite pan out, and then I guess me trying to be hipster because I have I, I have a bit of a be in my bonnet about. It. Sometimes I think players can look quite ungangly, but they're actually quite good footballers. And I always felt that John Flanagan got really unfairly. This is this is me stepping out of my zone here, but I felt like he got really unfairly boxed as a poor technical player. And although his touch wasn't great, I felt like he was actually quite a good progressive pass from the ball and yeah um, their fans called on the scouts cafu so i don't think they thought that yeah so <laughs> but um yeah i don't know how much that was local ad bias but yeah but i think the interesting one for that is just 
you know, I think they're actually the good ones because you can look back at them and you can go, okay, what information was I potentially missing? Um, I think Bowie and Kirkic is another one, and that's kind of more in terms of the mental side of the game and something that, you know, analytics is is probably a fair way of quantifying, but I think is really interesting how you can kind of group plays depending on how they think and, and their mentality and stuff like that. So, but I think it's all it's all valuable to have those failures to kind of inform your decision making process moving forward. Yeah, those those are really good ones. Anderson particularly was one I remember watching as kind of this really exciting attacking dynamic player, and then he turned into kind of a stodgy defensive midfielder. Uh, he still did all right, but he just wasn't the same player, was he? Um, mm. My ones, I I think I've said before, I'm I'm arrogant enough to uh, to say that. All the ones I've been mistaken on have been uh, victims of external circumstances. <laughs> Certainly not my judgment being wrong. So <laughs> I blame uh, I blame injury or I blame them being used wrong by the manager. So I, I refuse to ever acknowledge any mistakes. Although Sandro Ramirez, I, I did think would do quite well with Everton. Um, yeah, I, I had read all the Paul Riley's analytics pieces saying that he'd massively overperformed in Spain, but I didn't think he'd be as poor as he had been. Um, and certainly his career has, hasn't recovered at all in any of his loan spells, which is a surprise because I thought his underlying actual ability on the ball and movement and speed and pace would have actually seen him do quite well. But So so I'll, I'll begrudgingly accept him as a mistake. Chris, have you got any? Yeah, I've got a couple. I mean, the first one is a player who's very close to my heart as a Tottenham fan. Um, I mean, it's a quite an obvious example because I think most of the... Uh, the country was uh, said he wasn't very good at in, during his first season. But I remember going to the Tottenham training ground in like, February 2013 to watch a youth game. And there was a young striker playing and he'd played a few first team games. And I said like, to the person, I said, he's got something about him, but he's just no way going to make it um, in the first team for us. And of course, that's Harry Kane. Um, and a few, you know, it was that season, later that season, he, I think he scored like three and ten um, at the end, of the end of the 2013-14 season. And even then, he was putting up numbers which were suggesting people should be having more than a, you know, more than a second glance at him. And, you know, if a club had come in with, you know, 10 million for him, we might, you know, so that, you know then, you know, the, you know, the history might have been different. But, you know, it was interesting when I said that, someone from the academy turned around to me and said, this, this guy is brilliant he's going to be a superstar just you know just you watch um so obviously the, the Spurs Academy know what they're doing on that one the second one was it was the first day of the 2009-10 uh, no, 2010-11 season and David Silva had just signed for Manchester City and they played at White Hart Lane in the first game and Silva he looked so just he looked like I mean I did the classic English football fan he's not going to make it in the Premier League he's too small he's too slow um, I remember him getting chased down by, I think it was Tom Huddleston, who wasn't exactly the most mobile player and just sort of robbed of the ball really simply. And I, I just, I remember just a whole way back home, I was saying, oh, Man City, they're going to amount to nothing. They bought you know, rubbish. Um, and, uh, you know, players like this. So I, I, my first uh, acquaintance with David Silva was not a positive one. And I think I might have been proved wrong over the, the, the subsequent years, maybe. Well, you've always been. We've all, it's all happened to us all. You know, speaking of Tottenham, my one would be Vincent Janssen. I really, really liked him at AZ. And obviously, again, but maybe this is before I, I, I had clarity of thinking in the way I think now. Maybe I didn't put the Dutch, the fact that he was scoring against smaller Dutch defenders, which we discussed on a previous podcast. And when he turned up at Tottenham, he went through, you know, that scoring spell. And, you know, he, he couldn't score against Everton. 
that means you're not going to score at all because Everton have got a history of allowing players to score no matter you know if they never score again or never heard from again. So, yeah, Vincent Janssen was one I got wrong. You know, obviously he's in Monterey in Mexico now. I think so. His career, his career has not not gone the way I expected. You know, in terms of, you know in terms of him. Ross Barkley. Well, I don't say I wouldn't say I was wrong over Ross Barkley. I think that Ross Barkley at times shows that he's a you know a wonderful footballer. I just don't think he's where we expect, you know, we were ever expecting to be when we first saw him, maybe under Roberto Martinez in that first season. You know, he's, you know, he's got everything on the midfielder. Gone side Yeah, seven. he kind of changed, didn't he, Ross Barkley? Because when he first came through at Everton, he was, um, like David Moyes always used to say, was the new Brian Robson. He was a box to box defensive midfielder. Then he got this horrific triple leg break and uh, came back. And then suddenly he was like this dancing number 10 with like, really short passing, twisting, turning type movements. It, was like, it just came back a completely different player. And I, I, I will always defend Ross Barkley. I think he's underrated of anything. I think the, the amount of abuse he gets on analytics Twitter is amazing because I'm like, look at his actual output and it's really good. It's unbelievable, yeah. Consistently good passing. It's like one of those players who frustrates you more than others because you know he can do it and he can do some amazing things. And then he does something that looks brainless. But... I'd rather have a player did, who had his productivity with the odd kind of brainless moment than I would a player, a bland, like Davy Klassen type player who we replaced him with at Everton, who's perfectly adequate at everything, hardworking, moves well, finds space, but really doesn't touch the ball. Um, and I like players who touch the football. That's one of my fundamentals. I love Ross Barkley as myself. As a coach, I would love to have him in my midfield. I think just, you know, he's a, he is a kind of player where I think you've got to have a, a system that, that suits him, you know, uh, and um, but someone who can receive and retain the ball, you know, under pressure um, and is ambitious with the ball and can move it forward, um, you know, it, it, it's you know I think maybe he suffered from a lack of coaching over the years or maybe instability and too much the, praise instability in the amount of coaching that he you know dif- different styles of coaching because he's gone from one to the other um, you know he's you know for, from Moyes to Sarri to you know it's it's you know I think um, if he'd have you know I know he's rumored to join Tottenham if he'd have joined Spurs with Pochettino maybe Pochettino could have coached that extra bit out of him that, that you know to really sort of harness that talent like he did with Musa Dembele who is also my favourite player I think with Barkley I think we raised the point here in terms of what is a failure you know Ross Barkley people may think he never reached the heights they should have but as Tim points out he's more than an above average Premier League midfielder and at the end of the day that's a very good player so I guess success is all relative really I think if you perform at an above average level you're a good Premier League player shall we say that's, that's a success Luke what were you going to say sorry yeah, I, th- I think you guys are spot on that there's just so many factors that make a player successful or not in the transfer moves they do. And even if they're not successful, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad player. And I think that's one thing we're really aware of within the company is that those are the players we actually want to find are the ones who have maybe gone somewhere, not been successful. And those factors that have made them not successful, we can change those factors with a transfer move. And then that player comes out and does really well. So... I think that's a really interesting point that you know people are starting to be more obvious, more aware of is that you can't just judge a player on X, Y, Z. You know, there's many factors that kind of go into why someone's had a good, successful career or or not. There definitely is. I think you know I'll, I'll round this question up in the fact that Anderson, for example, you know, like Rooney. If you remember Rooney when he first came, he was such a wonderful player. And I think when you go to clubs like Man United, you have to fit in 
because it's already winning or had a winning culture. And I think it changed players. Maybe Anderson shouldn't have went to Manchester United because it didn't suit him as a player. Maybe he has that talent somewhere, just the wrong club for him. That, that can happen. And I think, yes, as Leslie greatly points out, we do look for undervalued or you know underused talent, shall we say? That, that, that is something that we do look at, you know, really, really intently. Right, then moving on to the next question then. Uh, Tim, do you want to take this one? Just a quick overview without mentioning the negotiation part of it. Uh, do you want to walk us through an example of how, we look, you know, how we're involved in recruiting a player? Not as a, it's a step-by-step guy, but just a quick overview in terms of how do we find their agents, how do we contact them, for example? Okay. Um, yeah, so it differs with each club we work. Some of them have very established contacts and uh, address books and they can call anyone and get an answer far more easily than we can. Other clubs um, who are looking, particularly they're looking to go into markets they've not operated in before, say the foreign market, European market, um, we often find ourselves not actually knowing how to contact a player because there's, there's no central like phone book of players with their agents um, and how to contact them. And the fact the rules are quite strict about you can't just go straight to a player as a club and say, do you want to play for us? You That's tapping up. So you do have to kind of make sure you're staying within the, the legal bounds of the system. So what we often do is transfer market website has agents listed. It's really inaccurate. And even if they're listed, they're not necessarily contactable because it's just some random name. And then you're you're left with a name, but you've got no phone number, you've got no other details. So we often do this uh, kind of wild goose chase where we're we're messaging people on Twitter or Instagram who are the actual players trawling through their who they follow, messaging random people who in their in their uh, followers list to say, are you their agent? Can you put us in touch with their agent? Can you put us in touch with them so they can tell us who their agent is? So it's it's quite a, a massively inefficient process, but this is football. And uh, often players are represented by more than one agent. Often the agents, you're kind of trawling through old PDFs you found on the internet on the French Football Association website from four years ago and seeing mentions of their name and then phoning these weird foreign phone numbers to uh, see if you can leave a message. And yeah, often you're ignored. Most of the time you're ignored. But if you're actually going to sign a player, you have to persist, however annoying this is, because of the system we operate. I'd, I'd love it if there was a central database, but there isn't. It's a big it's networking, isn't it? I think I think that's the key. I think that at clubs generally, you know, if, if you know if someone from say, you know, Bristol City called up an agent, then they're gonna take the call. It, it, it's sometimes more difficult unless you you know, a known a known presence in football, I guess. It, it can be quite difficult. Well that that's that's perfect, Tim. I think that we'll move on from that question. And so t- t- we've answered this question before on previous podcasts, but from two for two different perspectives in Chris and Luke. When buying from a foreign league, what specific attributes do you look for in a player to have an idea of whether whether they're able to adapt to the league or not. I go first on this one with a bit of personal experience. Mm. Um, I story time as, as we as we go. Um, no, I went when I first came over to Europe. One of the first countries I went to was England, and I was trialing in in the lower leagues, and um, it was really interesting. I was trialing at Kidderminster at the time, and. I kind of, you have this perspective that English lower league football is, you know, from overseas because it never experienced it. It was quite poor technically and it was quite crash and bash. And so I went into training expecting it to be like that. And I was I was really surprised how high the technical level of the players were. We went straight into passing drills. Boys were bopping about, no mistakes. And even into possession drills and, and the quality was really high. 
And then we went into like a game. And I remember the first, like the right back got the ball. It was just like when you've got a horse with blinkers, like he just did not look inside once to me. And it continued like that for the rest of the game. And it kind of, since I've been in Norway, we've had a lot of boys come from English clubs and it's been some like a trend that I've noticed with, with English, some certain English players is that they can have quite, they can have the technical skills. They can have, um, those skills, but they maybe don't quite understand the decision-making part of it or that decision-making part hasn't been trained regularly to kind of look into certain areas and to do certain things or see certain tactical pictures on the on the field. And so I guess when I look, and, and you don't want to, you know, we never, this is one thing, you don't want to blanket, you know, put a rule across a whole country. But for me, that's kind of one of those areas that you can look at when looking at players from England or maybe look a bit closer to see how they see tactical pictures because it's just something that I'm aware of that, you know, potentially, and and not that it's like that in England, I think the game's improved a lot now, but there's certain countries where I feel as though certain things like that are, you know, quite specific to the country. And I think we've done some amazing analysis on that as well in terms of, you know, like the stuff we were doing with aerial jewels in in different countries. Um, And so I think that's kind of one area is to look at kind of the tactical macro picture of a of a country and then that can kind of help you you know go a bit more in depth with certain players and how they can relate to to other leagues and and some areas to kind of be aware of that's a great answer chris have you got any input yeah i mean i think i think you guys have done some really great work on sort of you know looking at the the you know, the sort of metrics across leagues and which leagues are more similar and you know and as but i think that luke's made a good point there like don't be blanket about things. There are players who sort of belie um, the sort of the wisdoms, you know, like someone like Luka Modric is, you know, is five foot seven, five foot eight, uh, and not exactly, you know, built that much, but he came to England and did really well. Um, Fantastic. After a quite, you know, a small bedding in process, but, you know, it was always said at the time he'd had a, like a, a lone, a lone move to, uh, I can't remember what it was, it might have been Bosnia, which is apparently a quite a brutal league and that, you know, he's got credits to himself as well, bulking him up and, and sort of helping him deal with that. But um, it's, a, you know, we always get into there talking about, you know, this question is always framed around, can you move to England? And I think you can look at the other way. There are players who are probably getting lost in the sort of the maelstrom of the you know, National League and, uh, you know, the EFL, you know, the, the League Two and League One, you know, which isn't always terrible football, by the way. But they might be able to move and go abroad. And I think there's, there's you know, there are lots of young English players who I think would have benefited from, you know, making maybe moving to Holland, to, to Spain um, and things like that. But, uh, you know, but there's so many different sort of tactical things as well. And it's not just physical, you know. Someone like Jorginho coming from Napoli to England, you know, some of his in his position, and he, you know, you know, I think he's a good player, but I think he's has been found out in terms of you know some aspects, and one of them was the fact that we just mark completely differently in England. Um, in in Italy, they are far more, you know, there's more of a zonal approach um, to marking, and in England, you know, he was man marked straight away. And he found it difficult to really, you know, get into a rhythm. I think Tottenham were one of the first teams to do it, which was fortunate for me. Um, I think there we put Delhi on him for the entire game and completely stopped what he was doing. And that was sort of a tactical thing across leagues as well. So I think that, you know, there's so many things between leagues that, that have to be taken into account. And it's not just sort of the, the the physical aspect. Can you, you know, can you deal with a, you know, League Two defender kicking you up in the air five times? There's, there's so many more diff- different questions you need to ask um, when, when recruiting across leagues. 
No, that's 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 it. But they're, they're two perfect answers. I think that they tie up on top of what we've already said in previous podcasts. It is definitely, definitely, you're definitely right. They do need to consider different things, and you can't always have a blanket picture, as you say, of exactly what a player is or a can't could do. And I, and I definitely agree there, Chris. The players from England could have had different careers if they'd moved abroad. I think that that's something that needs to be looked at. Obviously, Jamie Hopcutt went to Ostersunds and made a career for himself. That, that's a, that's a prime example. Luke did the same thing, actually. Yeah, I had I had a really interesting chat with with Neil Kilkenny the other day. He's playing now in Australia, and and he said the same thing that he kind of wished he he was in Arsenal and ended up going to Birmingham and was quite a technical player, you know, the way he saw it. And he felt as though if he if he'd gone earlier, he could have maybe done better in the game. And and I think that's kind of a trend that you do see in England is that you know when you go down the leagues and kind of the football gets more physical. Um, it's really hard for those pl- those technical players who end up not making it, you know, your top clubs. It kind of gets harder and harder for them because they're going down to levels that don't show their characteristics and it just is worse and worse and kind of a never-ending cycle if they keep dropping down. So that's why I, I, you know, always kind of encourage any guys I speak to, you know, if they're in that boat to just try overseas because there's so many leagues and so many, countries which are open to those types of players and I think you can you know really develop and, and push your game on yeah most definitely I think if you ever need you want an interesting read up the Jamie Lawrence uh coming which academies I told he wasn't me his dad took him to Ajax he played in the Ajax Academy and then he went to Trenton in I think Slovakia Trenton yeah it is uh went to Slovakia did well there got a move to Andalek so it, as you say there's opportunities if players do seek them in Europe it's it, you, you, could be, you could be a type of player that may work in Italy that just doesn't fit here. There's always opportunities, opportunities for people. Uh, this question is is for myself because I, I I always like to learn from my mistakes. Are there any mistakes that you've learned from guys while you've been working? You know, in football with clubs, or, you know, looking at data. Is any of the mistakes that you've major mistakes that you've learned from? I think um, generally, cherry picking games is probably the the biggest thing. You always want to watch a player, and you always want to watch a play a game they've played well in. Um, and often, we often used to look at some of the games that the professional clubs we were looking, working with were looking at to assess players. And we were like, well, why have they watched a 4-0 defeat for an attacking midfielder? Because it's, not, it's barely touched the ball. And I think the reason they do that is because you probably learn a lot more from those games about the kind of the attitude of a player. Are they showing for the ball more? Are they kind of working hard even though their team's 2-0 or 3-0 down? And I think you probably do learn a lot about a player for doing that. You end up giving them a terrible mark for the game if they've, whatever they do, really. But you do actually get to learn quite a bit about the character. So it is worth doing, even though it's quite depressing watching a game where the player you you clearly like because you're recommending him to a club um, is actually really struggled. So, yeah, not cherry picking and do watch the bad games is what I've learned. I guess uh, another kind of personal experience for me was I'd finished up in the second tier. Like I said, I tried to roll kind of the free agent card and there was only pretty much two leagues left, which was like the Norwegian third tier, which I'd played in when I was a lot younger in the Faroe Islands. And I like to think of I'm like an analytical person. So I I did a bit of an analysis of both leagues because I knew I could probably get a move to both and kind of wanted to see which one gave me the best chance of progressing from it. And now I look back at the process I did, like looking at transfer market moves and stuff like that, and I just really let myself kind of be cognitively biased into the whole thing. 
um, because I didn't want to, you know, my ego didn't want to drop down again to the third tier. And so I kind of convinced myself the Faroe Islands was the best best move for myself. And I think in the end, when I look back at it with hindsight, um, it, it's been really tough for me since I left there to kind of move on. And I've come back to the third tier anyway now, and, and it would have been better for me just to go back a year a, a year before that, um, although I love my time in the Faroe Islands. So I think it was just a really good insight for me in terms of not letting data and analysis be kind of trying to be as objective as possible with it and just looking constantly to see if there's maybe cognitive biases that are coming into your into your analysis and just I think being aware of that always kind of helps along that process. Definitely. Chris? <coughs> yeah, I mean, I think one thing I'm really learning a lot more recently, you know, is you know, when looking at players, watching clips and full games of them, is that we get so drawn to seeing what we can see and we don't sometimes stop to think of what we can't see in a player. Because we can watch, you know, anyone can watch like it, you know, the, you know, the worst example is like a YouTube compilation of players doing brilliant things. But even if you go on Y Scout and you click on best actions, that kind of stuff, um, you need to sometimes step back and think, okay, this player looks really good, but is there something completely glaring there that that's not there that if we if we put this player forward to a club, he this player would really struggle in in that team. You know, for example, the, the player I wrote about recently, um, you know, a really good young player, but his his finishing is just very very one but dimensional. He opens his body out and goes for the far post every time. And you watch the clips of him, and you know some some of the goals are fantastic. But I'm thinking, well, he need, in in order for him to make that step up, he's going to need to improve his variety of finishing. He's going to need to wrap his foot around the ball to go for the near post. Um, you know, he's going to need to add a bit more disguise in the finishes and things like that. Um, but because you can't see that in the clip, you're just seeing what he's doing. You you know you you potentially could miss it, and then that, let's say you know that player goes up a level, and suddenly the goalkeepers are better, the defenders are smarter. And then you're going, oh, he's this guy scored, you know, ten goals last season. Now he's only scored four. You know, he, he's not. Why has he not made the step up? And that might be the reason. It's something that you had that that he wasn't doing, so you've not seen it. Definitely, no, I, I, I agree. You should look for. You should. I suppose you should start with a negative and work to work to a positive. I guess you should try and find those issues first. And I think my, my three are quite similar. You know, Luke mentioned you know cognitive bias there. I think that's really key. I think uh, the scout from Belgium once said to me, we, "We tend to form an opinion of a player based on the first few ta- you know, first five minutes of seeing them. They could score a goal. The first clips we see of them." Could make a great touch, you know, ingenious pass, and I think it's very easy to, to basically cling on to that first five minutes and basically try and block out the negativity that you see after. Obviously, you know, we're professional football; we don't do that anymore. But that was something of you know, you have to get the cognitive bias of it is something you have to remove. And also, I think when I obviously come the change from Twitter you know, putting players out on Twitter to work and with clubs, as I obviously was very into finding 18 to 22-year-olds who are the next big thing or could be the next big thing. And I think, what you, what you as I've said numerous times now, is it's not always about talent and, and precocious talent. It's about fit. And sometimes a 26-year-old is a better fit than a 19-year-old, depending on what the, what the coach wants or the club wants. And I think that's something you have to remember is that, you know, it's great to always want these 21-year-olds or 19-year-olds, but sometimes that solid 24-year-old who's going to be a 7 out of 10 every game is the right, play, right player for that team. And the final one, I think, is, you know, the the, 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 the final one is I think passion I think 
you can be too you can be too passionate at times. I think sometimes you know it's it, it's subjective football. You can really believe in a, you know a player, and you try you say to a club, "This player is going to be great. He's going to be great." But if they don't see it, they just don't see it, and, that, and, and that's fine. You obviously make a note of that for later, but. You, 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 that player can't be all consuming for you. You have to move on and then fi- try and find the player who fits what they want. That that's the key. It's it, it's not getting attached to players too much. I think at first, I think when we we start working with clubs, that happened. Then I think now we just move on. If if if, if, if clubs don't like certain players or don't think they suit, that, that, that it's football's very subjective. You know, obviously down the line, if you're right, that's great. If they're right, that's also great. So there's no problem. You know, there's no issues with that. Um, moving on then. <clears throat> this is just a little bit of a little bit of fun questions now. So in terms of you guys, in terms of who is your favourite player growing up? So I'd say between the ages of you know, you know, whatever, seven and fifteen, and then who's your favourite player as an adult? Uh, not from clubs you support, by the way. Um. Yeah, I would guess. When I, when I was younger, I think Ronaldinho was really the one who ignited kind of my love of the game. Um, just his technique and, and the things he was doing on the pitch was just something I'd never kind of seen before. And when I kind of first got, fell in love with football and remember trying to do the flip-flap and failing that about 67,000 times, um, you know, and that. So he was kind of my first love. And then uh, the second one is kind of a weird one because I, I really had an affinity for Joe Allen as like a small kind of midfielder who used to get bullied and I liked to be quite technical. And, um, and then we played, we, we played Liverpool in a friendly with victory and, um, and I remember everyone kind of running to like swap shirts. And I, and I just, I, I honestly feel like me and Joe just had a telepathic connection. Like we just had this eye connection across across the benches and I went over to Joe and I honestly felt like I didn't have to say anything and that he just understood all my worries about being like a sprawled infielder and he understood the battle of playing in English football. So if if Joe's listening, uh, which is probably not, but if he is, I just wonder if he's still got my Mel Victory shirt. So uh, let us know. I, I pride of place above his fireplace. Yeah, it's a romantic story, really. I never expected yeah, that. it is romantic. Tim, how about yourself? Uh, childhood heroes. Well, I'll, I'll date myself now because these players probably all retired before most of you were born. But uh, And this one, I'm cheating slightly because he did go on to play for Everton well after um, he was kind of a player I really liked. And that's Peter Beardsley. And this is quite a weird one because being an Everton fan, he was kind of in his pomp at Liverpool. But I wasn't so bitter in those days. And I just loved Peter Beardsley. He was just... A, a brilliant footballer. It's kind of small, jinking runs, great curl finishes into the top corner. Um, I vaguely kind of remembered him at Newcastle, but then it was really at Liverpool where he was just brilliant. Him and John Barnes um, in that kind of 87 Liverpool team were just so much fun to watch. And uh, yeah, it was, it was in a time where I could enjoy that without kind of being bitter. Um, and then now Messi is my favourite player. Of, of all time, just because he's so good at everything and just oh, really just you know, he's he's one of the greats, of course. And Chris, how about yourself? Um, <clears throat> well, fortunately, I don't have to pick a player from my own team because when I was like seven to fifteen, it wasn't exactly a prodigious time for Tottenham players. Um, so, but when I was really young, I was obsessed, you know, watching lots of Premier League and stuff with Matt Letizia. 
um, he very much fitted my sort of uh, the philosophy of uh, how I used to play the game when I used to play Sunday League football of playing number 10, trying to get on the ball. And then when we lost the ball, just stand still and not do anything. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know, that era in 90s football, there was, you know, Letizia was one of them, that, that kind of number 10 player who was sort of that still centre in this, just the madness that was going on around them. And, and I just loved what he did. The, the goals he scored, you know, the, the famous ones against, uh, was it Blackburn and Newcastle? Yep, Blackburn, um, yeah, Blackburn, yeah. They were just unbelievable, and I, he just looked like he came from a different planet. And I, I used to describe myself as a, a combination of Matthew Letizia and Carlton Palmer. But it was <laughs> the touch and technique. That is the weirdest Carlton. combination ever. It's the touch, touch and technique of Carlton Palmer with the work rate of Matthew Letizia. So uh, I see. Uh, That's okay. know, it comes clearer. But yeah. you know, back in those days, I mean, we had yeah, Cantona as well, another number ten. I know he played for you know Arsenal, but Dennis Bergkamp is one of my favourite players of all time, and it he should have come to Tottenham um, and I think mean, I'm pretty sure Andy this is probably up your street you know the back in them days the Football Italia on Channel 4 mm. you know Battistuta Totti Del Piero all these Actually, just yeah. <laughs> like I'm not talking know. about Totti and Del Piero because people get upset when I say that one of the two is overrated I'm not going to say who <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get into that discussion you know, but, um, do you think there's a, do you think there's a place in the game for a, a, a Matthew Letizia or a kind of a lazy number ten nowadays? Everyone's playing a four three three with a six foot two sprinter up front. What about a Matthew Letizia? I it's I'd like to think so, and it's weird because I, I really you know love the sort of the high tempo dynamic pressing style, um, which sort of renders that you know <laughs> the Letizia's the Racomes completely uh, you know redundant really. But I'd like to think that there'll be a comeback of that player purely because of nostalgia really, because they, they did seem like they were from another planet. Yeah. We were thinking Atalanta is probably one of the few teams that really can accommodate within their system, kind of a a mercurial number 10. Um, So yeah. And I I want more teams to play two up front and more teams to play a a mercurial number 10 and then I'll be happy. (laughs) That'd be nice. Um, I agree. I think the the you know Maverick needs to come back into the game. I think um, you know definitely like Ilicic, obviously Papu Gomez. You both play for Atlanta, given that license by Gasparini to play. Sorry, Chris, Chris, I didn't give you a chance to say who your adult favourite player was. So uh, I'm going to take a leaf from Tim's book, who sort of you know manoeuvred around the rules. So I'm going to 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 pull up the ex <laughs> the ex Fulham AZ uh, player who's currently playing in China for Guangzhou. Um, Musa Dembele. Um, I don't think he played for any other clubs. So, um, he, he, I've never seen a player can do what he did, and and I start, I've not seen a player since who, who can do what he did. And you know, I mean, going back to what we said earlier, he was a player who he was at Tottenham for a good few years before people realised his true worth and what he could do. And it took Pochettino spotting that sort of the system for him to really thrive in. Um, he was unbelievable. You know, I wanted the when players are passing to him, I wanted them to underhit the ball because when you underhit the ball to Dembele, you get two players trying to run in and press and win the ball back, and Dembele would just he'd, he'd get there, and them two players are out of the game, and we were moving forward. I've never, his his ability to stay on the ball. Because I remember Everton playing Alkmaar when he was kind of a. a 
a five goal a season to ten goal a season striker. He was, and then yeah. he was back like three, two or three years after that, and he was this kind of hugely strong, powerful central midfielder with a, a silky touch. And it was like, how can that be the same player? And I wonder how many other players there are who are are misused or just not fulfilling their potential because they haven't had a manager who said, I'm going to reinvent your you as a as a different type of player. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, and I think that's where the real talent lies. You know, that 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 is a coaching thing. I think. I mean, I think analytics can help uh, spot a player that that can potentially do that. Um, that you know, or, or fulfill a different role. But um, yeah, you know, it, it, he was there. I think we signed him in 2012, but we only realised <laughs> 2015 just how good he was when when the system set up to get to get the best out of him um but yeah he's he's my favorite modern player because i regularly go back onto y scout and watch his uh dribbles you know just for you know to, just just because i like want to be so yeah i <laughs> love watching him <laughs> no but they're good choices I, I mine would be Thierry on really i think when he came to england in 98 i think he just changed the way i looked at strikers obviously a lot we had a lot of the number nines back then we had the new less fair and alan shearer types and Henri was this player who played in the channels. He was, you know, at the pace of a winger, unbelievable first touch, scored wonderful goals, and he was just classy all the way, all the, all the way around. And I think I, the, the sad thing for me is I don't think he ever had a good game at Goodison Park when I went to watch him. And I, I never, I, I suppose, I never got to see him live of a great game. Not that I did want to have a great game against Everton, but you get my point. Plenty of people did when I watched them, but he would be one of the ones that you know I most you know I missed out on seeing live in the sense that you know he didn't perform in front of my eyes. But as you know, as a as a you know an adult, obviously you know people know all over passing midfield and Xavi Hernandez of Barcelona, obviously is one of the player I defend most of anyone. I think vastly underrated. I think he's boy did for Barcelona. I think Iniesta, obviously, and Messi, more spectacular players. But I think Xavi and, and Busquets as well, obviously, the El Pavotti name is, is partly based off him and Guardiola's position. I think them two are two players that I think were just so integral to that system, and he was just a beautiful pass. And I, I, yeah, I'll give one from an opposition play, opposition team. I'm obviously an Everton fan, but Xavi, Xavi Alonso is one of the best passes of the ball I've ever seen. I think. He's another wonderful player. I think when he went to, I think people saw, you know, obviously played well at Liverpool, but when he went to Bayern and Real Madrid, people saw really how good he really was. I think then, then two would be, you know, then, then, you know, so then a couple of players, but then, you know, I'd say Javi would be the main one as an adult and as a, as a, as a younger man. Uh, Thierry Henry, uh, in terms of managers you most admire in the modern game or in history, have you got, have you got any of them, Tim or Chris? Uh, I I will give a shout out to Arrigo Sark, who. For some reason, I, people seem to have rewritten him as like a really defensive manager in in recent years. I don't really understand why, because I think some of the best attacking play I've ever seen was from some of his kind of Milan teams. Um, he always built from the back end. He had an incredibly strong defence. But I think back to that kind of 4-0 European Cup final win and they, that just great team with the, the three Dutchmen and just the variety of um he always played a four four two, but he's kind of was able to vary how his um team played depending on the players available to him. And he was just yeah, an interesting manager who built a legacy but hasn't really kind of kept his uh reputation as the years have passed. But I remember him as a really great manager. 
Just a quick quick point, you know, on Arrigo's sack. I think you're right. I think I've noticed a lot of pieces lately seem to try and pick flaw a lot of flaws in, in what he did. You know, a lot of the pieces focus on Don, without Donadoni, who didn't have anyone to break the game, and without the athleticism of of, of Reichard and uh, Hullet, they didn't have it. And I think that I think as time goes on, people do tend to pick flaws in managers. But obviously, it's with modern eyes. It's a completely different game now. I think at the time, Saki revolutionised Italian football for a lot. You know, and maybe not anyone since has revolutionised revolutionised Italian football really I think a lot of a lot of managers fell into the Catanaccio of the you know the 60s you know it was done in the Grande Inter team obviously there's me flexing my historical muscles there but yeah I think that that's definitely true Chris what about you in terms of managers um I guess I mean from watching a lot of English football I think you know as as again as, as hard as it is to say um when Wenger came in to to England, it was again. It was just like watching a completely different sport at some points. Um, you know, and I, I don't think you can understate the impact he had on on English football. I know people are going to sort of focus on what happened in the latter few years, but you know, early on, it was it, he was so far beyond any, anyone else in the country. And um, I, you know, I, I I have to I have to sort of hold my hands up up there. But um, I guess, you know, that that Arsenal team, they played football how I wanted it to be played and I wanted my team to play like that. Um, and I think that probably sowed the seeds of how I, I, I started to get into coaching. Obviously, I started, I got into coaching, started, you know, just at sort of the end of the whole Barcelona dominance um, under Guardiola. I think, you know, that's not a particularly different, you know, you know, out there choice to go for, but I, I wouldn't really be here without without that team. But um, a coach that I really, really love, and I'm really glad he's going to he's back in in Europe now. Actually, is is Roger Smith. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really looking forward to to watching how he gets on in in Holland. Um, I think his teams play again when you watch watch them. They just it looks like they're playing something completely different, and there's you know completely manic pressing and really direct vertical football, which is um which is when it goes well, it it, it, it just looks amazing. And I, I always talk about the uh, uh, the game against Ajax for when he was managing Red Bull Salzburg in 2014, which is one of the most amazing games I've ever seen. And I, I I regularly go back and watch watch a bit of it. And I can't really end without mentioning Marcelo Bielsa, can I? Because um, well, of course not. <laughs> just the, yeah. Um, again, the, watching his teams is just an education and. Um, and you know, for me, it isn't about the trophies that 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 they have or haven't won. Um, like you know, there's Bielsa teams. Um, they're just they're just a, a crazy watch. And um, anyone who's listening, you know, who's never that watched the Bielsa team, please do. Please go watch it. Yeah, that Bilbao Man United game. Um, they don't get a trophy for that. 2012. But it was just I, I watched it the other day. Um, just to remind, well, not all of it, but the the kind of a highlights, just to remind myself of how how dominant they were in those games and it that could have if it wasn't for De Gea that would have been seven or eight it was unbelievable the amount of uh, brilliant saves De Gea made in that game I've, and never, seen, yeah, I've never seen a team go to Old Trafford at, at that point with yeah. disrespect to Man United so much yeah but peak Man United as well so yeah not, I, I, oh, it was unbelievable I, 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 you know, I, I, like, I like the point you picked up there. Someone once argued you know, Bielsa that he, because he hasn't won trophies, he's not this uh, revolutionary man, well, not revolutionary. You know, he's not this like manager that's, that the people learn from. I think 
Bielsa basically influenced football. He's a major influence on what we see today. And I think it doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter whether you've won trophies or not. You ask Pep Guardiola which coaches influenced him. And this would be Pep is obviously one of my choices. I'm a massive Pep fan, but also Johan Cruyff obviously influenced him a lot. But Juan Malilo, who didn't win anything, was he was assistant manager at Sevilla recently, I think under San Pauli. But his use of the 4 3 3, I think that's what, you know, the way his. You know, Positional play football is what Pep loved when he went to play under him. So I think, I think Bielsa does need to be held up in in, in high regard. But just and just because he hasn't won trophies doesn't mean he hasn't had an influence on the modern game. Same same with Man Manuelino. I think for me, I think you know, Pep Guardiola's you know for me is my favourite manager of all time. You know, I wish he managed my club, but it'll never happen. Uh, Arsene Wenger's fantastic. That was a great. That was a great point. He did change football in this country, Chris, and it made me having to watch the late nineties Everton teams really sad that a team you know that fans could experience that level of football now. I know Arsenal. I've obviously had to sit through the George Crane years, which were great for them. But they won things at the end of the day. But I think, you know, Wenger's great. And I think the other one from history I love to read about and I love to like sort of learn more about is Valerie Lovanovsky. He built, you know, four teams essentially, three at Dynamo Kiev, obviously the last one being his great side that went to the semi finals of the Champions League with Shevchenko and Rebrov. Yeah. Uh, and also obviously he was a revolutionizer and using the analytics and you know, in football. What were you gonna to say to him, sorry? Well there, there's the player he got wrong, Rebrov. I was really excited when he came to Tottenham. Um, yes, same. Well, I blame not training him. They say I, I'm only semi, semi uh, admitting I was wrong because I blame Tottenham for ruining him rather than him being a bad player. He had a weird personality as well, but we'll move on from that. And this is the final, and the final question for the for, for today is: that you obviously learning is a big aspect of what we do. Is there any football books that you recommend for people to read, Chris? You can start with this one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got hundreds of football books, and um, you know, I think. There's actually been the last few years been a sort of a golden age of football <laughs> writing. Um, it's been brilliant. But the one that, that sticks in my mind always comes to mind first is the European Game by Dan Fields End. Mm, um, reading at the moment, which is I, I think I think superb. He you know he goes for sort of like a, a tour around um, Europe uh, to like the best academies, best clubs, and then you know work you know to get sort of you know sort of ideas of how they um you know how they they see success and it's really good and he's a great writer um so that that's uh that's the one i i would um i would, I would point people towards tim uh i've i've read quite a few um the numbers game by chris anderson's quite interesting from an analytics kind of uh point of view it's got a lot of lot of things in there that you i think if you're probably on active on twitter analytics you probably have seen these points raised but that was kind of the book that sparked a lot of discussion and uh i quite like books that look at lessons you can learn from sport and that can translate into sport and there's edge by ben littleton which i have recently read which again yeah it's it's, it's interesting and it's got lots of kind of things about the red bull system and kind of stories from people who are trying to make changes to football which can be quite resistant to change from outsiders so it's quite quite refreshing to see how people have broken through and as a company obviously that's what we're trying to do is kind of break into a an industry as outsiders and see what if we can learn from it and also give new ideas to clubs about how they can compete 
I enjoyed uh, the first chapters about Athletic Bilbao and anything at Athletic Bilbao and the Cantera where they don't sign any players from outside the Basque region. Is it's I'm all about that. I really love that 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 story and the romanticism to that team. Uh, for me, the, uh, you know, obviously the, the European game was one I was going to mention, and uh, Chris Anderson's book, The Numbers Game, is another one I was going to mention. But Football Hackers by Jim Rice, Christoph Beerman's also excellent. That's a, a sort of update, really, of what's happened over the last six years since the Numbers Game, really, in terms of looking at the modern ways we think about data. And also two history books, which I love football history. I think you can learn so much. You know, a lot of things that we can be recycled. You know, into you know, obviously inverting the pyramid by Jonathan Wilson is a great book. You know, if you look at the way Pep plays with you know played the inverted M really or the, the, the WM formation. You know, when he's attacking, those things get recycled in football. But the two ones I love are behind the curtain by Jonathan Wilson. Also, that looks at the Europe, you know football in East Europe, Eastern Europe. You know, you can learn a lot about the different types of coaches. Obviously, Lobanovsky features heavily in the, in the Ukraine section. There, well, that, that's a great book, and also Calcio by John Foss. I think we all grew up in the nineties, loving Italian football. It was, a, you know, it was a big part of my life when I grew up, and it, it looks into the, the culture of Italian football, the history, the politics behind it, the fans, and of course the players and the romanticism behind it. All. And I think that's a, that's also a great book. Uh, well, gents, that's it. Any parting thoughts for this week? Well, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we will bring you the coaching one next week, which I look forward to. Yeah, Chris, good day. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, th- thanks for having me on. It's been it's been good. My first ever podcast, so uh, I hope it's uh, I hope I've done myself. Oh, well, hopefully some, you're many, many more. Some form of justice, but uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been great, and um, looking forward to recording the coaching one. Yeah, well, I wouldn't dock both you and Tim wages because you both mentioned players who played for your club, which was against the rules, but, but neither here or there. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe, and you know, we'll hope that we'll, we'll hear you next week with the performance analysis podcast. Until then, stay safe. Bye bye.